if you have your Bibles, if you will, go ahead and turn to Job, and you can just turn to chapter 1. Uh, we will do similar to what we did last week, and uh, we are taking a broad look at Job and the message of Job, uh, meaning that we're looking at passages of Scripture all through Job over the course of these five weeks. Uh, Job is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to kind of wade through. It's tough. Um, yet what I have found as I have continued to read through it over and over again uh, is that the instruction is incredible. It's incredible. Uh, probably centered to one of the most challenging parts of our life, and that's human suffering. And, and we're not here to just, to just do nothing but dwell on suffering, but I, I'm reminded of the human suffering that is going on around us constantly. Uh, it's about so much more, but the things revealed are things that are most often only known through suffering. That's the reason that we looked at what Job said in chapter 42. He said, I had heard of you, and now I see you. In other words, it was through the course of his suffering that he came to know God. Now, none of us in here want to suffer. But would we be willing to suffer for the sake of knowing God? Is knowing God that important? Is knowing God something that you want bad enough to suffer for? Let's kind of refresh our memories just a little bit about Job. Job is a man who worships God. And we know he's devoted to worship. We heard what he had to say about his children. He offered sacrifices for them just every day because they were gathering every day. He didn't know what they were doing, but he worshiped and he interceded for them. But the narrator says this of Job. He said he was blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We found that in chapter 1. That was the narrator. Whoever's writing Job writes that about Job. And then we go just a few verses later, and what do we hear? God said of Job, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That was, that was what God said about it. And then we're going a little bit farther, and we get just a little bit deeper into it, and God says it again and then adds something to it. He says, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Only this time God added, when he says it that second time, he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited, and he's speaking to Satan, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now we would think in looking at that, that this book is about Job, that somehow or another we should elevate him. And oftentimes when we hear Job spoken of, uh, we hear about a, a man that is being uh, elevated and celebrated. And certainly uh, there are some things about Job's life that are, are incredible. And I hope that I could walk through suffering in the way that he does. But Job is not the one that is being pointed to in the course of this book. I've read some good books about Job. In fact, if you've never read uh, Chuck Swindoll's series on, on biblical characters, he's got a book on Job. And it is an incredible book to read about Job. But at the end of the day, Job's not about Job. Job is about God. 
That's who he's about. And he understands that when he gets to the end, because in Job's life, once he started suffering, and it was clear that that was already there, Job's life was about Job. Then we say, well, how do we reconcile what the narrator says and what God says about Job? It's true. But understand that when the narrator is saying what the Holy Spirit is telling the narrator to say, and God is saying what he knows is true in Christ, Job was righteous and upright. Not because Job was righteous and upright, but because God was seeing Job through Christ. So the reason we read the text this morning, we'll deal with that on the last week, uh, talking about when Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. Job needed a Redeemer, and he had one. And God was looking at Job through that, and that's the reason he makes this statement. But don't miss this, Job was not perfect in the course of all of this. He was not perfect. He was a whole lot better than I am. But I'm not perfect, he's not perfect, and you're not. Uh, Last week we embarked on a journey through Job to, uh, to find out who was behind suffering. Okay, In other words, who causes suffering. And our interest was to see if we could determine if God is associated in any way with human suffering. If you missed being here, I'll just kind of give you just a synopsis of what we discovered. Our discovery from Job is that there is no other explanation given in Job but that God is behind all of this. The record of Job not once seeks to remove God from the suffering equation in fact we see how god in his sovereignty fits into suffering that is the point of job kind of alongside that conviction that we have of the sovereignty of god that's the reason we saying god is sovereign over us this morning that conviction uh, there is an important other conviction that comes up alongside of it Subsidiary conviction, I guess you could say. God uses others to accomplish His purposes. He used Joseph's brothers to accomplish His purpose in putting Job in a position in Egypt to provide for Jacob and his family. God used Assyrians and He used the Babylonians to bring about hardship and punishment to drive toward, push toward the redemption and restoration of His people. He used Pharaoh in the life of Israel. The Scriptures tell us, for the Scriptures say, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul wrote that. We see this repeatedly through Scripture. God uses those who seek to do wrong to bring about His redemptive purpose. And isn't that what's happening in the case of Joseph's brothers? His brothers seek to kill him. Rather than that, they sell him. God's hand on all of that. They intend to kill him. They sell him. And we hear at the end of that story, after the family's been reunited, and the family finds out that Joseph isn't dead, what do we hear? Joseph says, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We concluded that God is sovereign 
and that He rules over everything. We said this, and we didn't go into a lot of detail. We won't today. But He is the ultimate cause behind everything, though He is not the direct cause. He rules. He governs. He sets boundaries. We see that with what He did with Satan in Job's case. He set the boundaries. He allowed for it. He said, you do that. He willed it. He purposed it. But He placed boundaries on it. That's what a sovereign does. He has the power to stop anything at any time. But He has planned an end to everything. And He works that plan and in a mysterious and humanly incomprehensible way, He governs all that is done and He does not remove Himself. So we're never able to say that this suffering or that suffering is outside of God's will. To do so would be to say that He failed to rule righteously or that there's a power greater than Him or that somehow or another there was a moment in which God ceased to be God. And this brings us to where we are today as we consider Job. Now that we know for certain the who behind everything, what is the next question that most everyone asks when suffering comes on them? Why? Why? Is suffering purposeful? Let's put it in the, in the negative. Is suffering meaningless? Well, back some time ago, I read an article written by a lady who had polio. And it was in the midst of her struggling with polio when it was most severe for her uh, that she actually came uh, to know Christ. But it was through all these challenges. And the woman uh, came to be the believer. And in the article that I read about her, this is what she said. I met with a friend who believes that while God draws near to us in our trials, people often suffer in ways that God never intended. God reacts to our suffering, but He never causes it. To her, the view that God has ordained all of our suffering seems inhumane. She sees it as completely against God's loving character. Hurtful at best and vindictive at worst. And then the lady says, personally, I couldn't disagree more. God's ordination of our suffering has offered me life-giving hope in the wake of unspeakable sorrow. She said, I understand it sounds cruel to say that God willed my infant son's death. But He did. But believing that my son died against God's will is far worse than believing that God willed it. Because if it was against God's will, she goes on to say, that would mean that God is not in control, that evil can ultimately win, and that my future is uncertain. Did you catch that earlier when we sang uh, the old Gaither hymn that we sang in the second verse, talking about uh, seeing a, a newborn baby, but then being able to say, but that child is able to live in uncertain days because 
he lives. She said, I know without question that God had reason and purpose and meaning behind that, and it was God's will, because he is in control, and she would not concede otherwise. She said, I honestly cannot imagine a more depressing scenario than to think that somehow God does not ordain suffering. As someone who has endured adversity, my greatest comfort is knowing that God is sovereign. He has ordained all my trials. Therefore, and this is the key, my suffering has purpose. So is suffering meaningless or does it have purpose? You know, this was Job's struggle. This was his struggle. Job's question was, why is this happening to me? And he kept over and over again, and we're going to look at this, asking this question. Just tell me, God. Just tell me, God. Why is this happening to me? Job begins in chapter... 2 begins in chapter 3 uh, he begins at this point he said I wish I'd never been born in other words this is meaningless to the point that it doesn't even make life worthwhile I wished I hadn't been born suffering makes no sense in the course of this life look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 let the day perish on which I was born and the night said a man conceived then he goes on, verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Verse 20, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter that have been soul? In other words, all of this makes no sense. At least it didn't to Job. Look in Job chapter 6. He continues, he wants God to kill him. Again, suffering to him is meaningless. Look in verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Look in Job chapter 7. Job says suffering leaves one uh, without hope. Look in verse 3. He said, so I allotted Months of emptiness. In other words, he's been suffering for months. And nights of misery are appointed upon me. Look down in verse 11. Therefore I will not restrain my mouth, for I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 15. So that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? And then look in verse 20. He says, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? 
Why have you made, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I will not be. Look in chapter 9. Job just comes out and says it. Uh, Behold, in verse 12. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? He's asking the question, what are you doing here, God? This makes no sense. This has no purpose. It has no meaning. It's what he is pointing to. Look in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. In other words, God, you are against me. You're contending against me. Tell me why. Why am I suffering? What are you, why are you doing this to me? Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as the man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay and you'll return me to dust. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart and I know that this was your purpose. But I want to know what it is, Job is saying. I want to know what this purpose is. What meaning does this suffering have? Let's continue with what he has to say. Look at chapter 13, verse 24. He says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? In other words, God, you've been contending against me. Why now have you hidden yourself and you don't show your face, but you count me as your enemy. Look at chapter 21, verse 7. Still questioning God. He said, why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? You know what he's doing? He's drawing God's justice into question. He's saying, God, he said, I don't get it. I'm a righteous man. I'm suffering. And yet I look around me and I see those who are wicked that are, they're old and they're fat and they're living well. And here I am wasted away. Look at chapter 27. All along the way, Job is pressuring God. He's wanting to know why. Job again took up his discourse in verse 1 and said, As God lives who has taken away my right 
and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. In chapters 29 and 30, he's recalling the past when he remembers when he once was a respected man and he looked up and was looked up to. But he said that God has humbled him. Look at verse 11 of chapter 30. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. And then look in chapter 31. Beginning in verse 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him, I've not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I've opened my doors to the traveler. In other words, he's building his case all along because he has asked to be able to defend himself before God. And here he's making his defense. Because I stood in great fear of the multitude in verse 34, and the contempt of my families terrified me so that I kept silent and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and I would bind it up on me as a crown and I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if it had eaten its yield without payment and had made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and, and foul weeds instead of barley. And he goes on and on and on, building this case, wanting to know why. If you notice in our text, in our worship guide, our text then turns to what God has to say. I want us to begin in verse 38. Then, chapter 38 and verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. I want you to hear what's happened. God said, you want a hearing? I'll give you a hearing, but just pause here. Now you answer some questions for me. You've been asking me all along the way, why, why? And you have been before me with your righteousness. And you have been telling me, about your righteousness. Now listen to me, Job. And then over the course of the next verses, hear what he has to say. Beginning in verse 4 through verse 21, he questions him about the earth. And here's what he has to say. Where 
were you when I laid the foundation of the earth. Give me your understanding of that. Look in verse 22. He points then uh, to the heavens and what takes place in the course of the heavens and in the skies. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? Do you understand these things, Job? Do you have the wisdom and knowledge to deal with with these things. Look in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? In other words, do you know about the animal kingdom? He goes on to say, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Are you there when each mountain goat conceives? Are you there when each mountain goat gives birth? He said, do you know these things, Job? Do you have knowledge of these things. And then when he gets to chapter 40, God said in verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? In other words, Job, you have been seeking to find fault with me. You have brought into question my justice, and you have asked me why about your suffering. You have found fault with me. Let me ask you this. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? You've not been able to answer these other questions. You lack wisdom there. You lack understanding. And then for a brief moment, here's what Job says. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I'll not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, I hadn't been able to answer one question. And Job had already said earlier, I knew that I couldn't win an argument with you, God. I knew I couldn't win an argument with you because that's what Job seeks to do in the course of his suffering and struggling. He's wanting to argue with God. And then God said to him in verse 7, again, Dress for action. Get ready for battle. I've already beat you up one time. Let's get ready. Let's do this again. I'm going to give you another shot at this, Job. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Get that. You make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? You've been seeking to put yourself in the right and you have said that you would not concede that there is something that you that is going on in your life. Will you put me in the wrong then? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then he asks this question. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. 
Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your, that your own right hand can save you. You see what he's saying? Did you hear earlier in our confession when Booney pointed us in that text and said that there were times, and even in our prayer of confession, that there are times when we place ourselves above God? That's exactly what God is dealing with him about here. He said, Show me your majesty and splendor, show me your godness. Show me your wisdom. Show me your knowledge. Why did Job suffer? He's asking God. And what does God say? He doesn't say a thing about Job's suffering. If you've ever read Job, did you notice that? God never answers that question. He never answers that question. He just simply pointed him back to his own greatness, to God's greatness. And in the process, what happened? Well, Job's humbled. He's reminded, I don't have this kind of wisdom. I don't have this kind of understanding. I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know what's going on in my own life, much less the life of of the goat on a mountain that no one sees but God who is giving birth and God knows everything. He knows everything. But God goes on to question him. He says, Job, you want to be God? Tell me about the hippopotamus. That's what he says. In verse 15, Behold the behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. And it goes on to describe what most folks believe is either an elephant or a hippopotamus. Job, you want to be God? Tell me the purpose of the hippopotamus. You like that, don't you, Tripp? In the midst of suffering and struggling, God says, What about the hippopotamus? What about the elephant? He goes on a little bit farther in chapter 41. Can you draw out the levathon with a fish hook? In other words, can you catch the sea monster with a hook? Job's suffering. He's wasting away. And God's question to him is, Job, tell me about the hippopotamus. Tell me about catching the sea monster out of the sea. He's at a loss. He's at a loss. In verse 11, Who was first given to me that I should repay him? This is what God says. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. Not yours. The point is, is that there are those things that we cannot know and will not know because 
of the mystery that God is to man. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is His testimony before Pontius Pilate made good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What was Paul saying? What was God saying? He was saying, trust in that one that you cannot understand. God simply told him, you don't know what I know. And you cannot do what I can do. You don't know what I know and you cannot do what I can do. The point is just simply trust me. Trust me. How has God ultimately answered the problem that Job had of the why? You know, we have been pointing all along for the last, this makes three weeks. You're going to hear it again. We've sung of it today. Because He lives. Who? Because the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Redeemer lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. All along, pointing us back to Christ. How does Christ ultimately solve that? What does God do in redemptive history that enables us to live without knowing all the ins and outs and pieces of the why of our suffering as if somehow we need to know the answer to make it through? Well, He satisfies all that in Christ. Listen now. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Remember, Paul is writing this from a prison cell in the midst of suffering and struggling and anguish, being separated from the churches, not able to do what God had called him to do. I don't know of anything that would be any more painful for, for Paul than that. He mentioned his thorn in the flesh, but... God just simply told him, said, Paul, you, you, and Paul understood it. My grace is sufficient. Move on. And Paul said, I know now why he's done that. Because there's something in me that would seek to rule and rule me. So in my weakness, God keeps me in the place that I need to be so that I can do what God's called me to do. He's in prison and all this stuff is going on. And this is what he writes. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here, listen. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What was Job ultimately seeking to do? He was seeking to place his own righteousness next to God's. 
as being equal to God. And God all along the way never answers His question about suffering, just simply shows Him, you aren't me. So Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, listen, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to what? Death. Submitting Himself to the glory of God to suffer. To suffer death. Even death on a cross. Even severe suffering to death. And therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. You know why we don't need to know the answers to all the things that God does in the course of our lives in ordaining suffering? Because Christ has suffered for us and has been honorable and honored God and submitted Himself to God. Therefore, His works we do, as we prayed a moment ago, and even greater as we follow that path of trusting God. And according to what he said in John, as we prayed a moment ago, it's because he is at the right hand of the Father. So what has he done? He has enabled us to suffer without questioning. Because the greatest suffering was His suffering because it was, in fact, with Him unjust. Now, what have we not answered? God did not offer an answer to Job for His particular suffering. And we have only dealt with Job. But it may be helpful to us as we draw to an end here for today. Why do believers suffer? Why do they suffer? Well, just think about it for just a moment. First, suffering is a way of life. We said that at the very beginning. Suffering is a part of this life on earth. It is a part of the human condition. Christians suffer, non-Christians suffer. Non-Christians don't deserve to suffer here any worse than Christians, and Christians don't deserve a better life here than a non-Christian. It is a part of the human condition. We live in a cursed world. Suffering comes by way of us living in this cursed world. We don't always always have to try to figure out what is behind the scene of it. We just accept that suffering. There's another reason. Scripture's clear about this. We experience suffering because at times it does correct things in our life. We're going to find that it corrected some things in Job's life. 
In fact, we read that in our confession this morning. Look there in chapter 42. In verse 2, Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, Job said, you've got a purpose. I don't know what it is. And there's not a thing in the world that's going to stop that purpose from taking place. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. In other words, I opened my big mouth and I started asking questions and accusing and I started thinking things that are not right. Things too wonderful for me. Things that I did not know and that I cannot know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he says this, I had heard of you. But now my eyes see you. There were some corrective measures being worked out in the course of Job's own life. This man, remember, that the narrator said was righteous, good, just, honorable. This man that God said the same thing. But God never said he was perfect because he wasn't. He was being sanctified. And that's why God was holding him up before Satan. I'm going to show you a man who honors me, but who is not perfect. You will attack him, do whatever you want to do with him, just spare his life. And then God used those things to correct some things in Job's life. You know, the psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 119.67. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I obey your word. Before I was afflicted, I was straying. Now that I've been afflicted, I obey your word. The third is, is that God just builds character in us through suffering. Romans chapter 5, we've looked at this text many times. We have read this text. I want you to see the application for it. In chapter 5, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing what? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured in our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then finally, you'll recall this, most of you will, What's the story highlighted in John chapter 9? A man who was born blind, who was healed, and Jesus made this statement. He had been born blind not because of sin in his life and not because of sin in his mom and daddy's life, but simply for what reason? So that he could heal him. And bring glory to God in that work. The purpose of our suffering will almost never be known during the season of our suffering. 
We agonize when we're suffering, wanting to know why. We think in some way, if we know why, that it would make the suffering easier, or that somehow we would get through it. What we're seeking is to know something that we can't know, and we're saying, if I know something that I can't know, and you tell me, then I'll get there. And God is saying all along the way through Job, don't worry about what you don't know. Just trust me. We may very well discover certain things along the way, and, and we should just seize them. However, we may not. The pain and anguish may just be too much at the time. In whatever state we are in, remember that God is sustaining you. Whatever state it is. Even if you're taking chemo and you're puking what seems to be your guts out and your hair is falling out by the handfuls, and you don't have the strength to even hardly crawl back to the bed, know that God is sustaining you. He did Job. He did Job. Our suffering is never meaningless. How do we know that? God's not a meaningless God. Now everything He does is purposeful. His ways are purposeful. He doesn't send His people on meaningless missions. Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, you know, the great preacher. What some of you don't know about him, if you've only heard him quoted in sermons like this, you don't know that he struggled with depression. Well, part, of the, part of the work that Rod does is work with pastors, by the way, just to point to him, who struggle with what, Rod? Depression. Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression all of his life. You know how he died? He died from gout and Bright's disease at age 57. Spurgeon said, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. He said, I wouldn't want to live if I didn't know that all of this is being given to me and measured and portioned out just like God intended. Whatever state, trust in Him. Turn with me to Job chapter 13. I want to ask Booney and Catherine and Alina, if they would come, y'all come. I want to read this verse of Scripture. Then I want you to hear this song as they sing. Job 
Job made this statement, chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. All that Job had going on at that time was not pure. But he was willing to even state that God can kill me, but I am not going to abandon him.